The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. So why isn't all of our online communication encrypted? I mean, there are some good reasons not to do it, especially when it comes to things like online safety. But also, maybe we've gotten just a bit too comfortable with letting companies and governments just kind of look through all of our most private conversations. So to end 2022, let's bring on Andy Yen. He's the CEO of Proton, which makes the encrypted email service Proton Mail. And it's a product that's expanding, actually, into things like Docs and Calendar, wink, wink, Google. And it's also seen its user base basically double over the past few years, past two years, really. So as you listen, I would ask you to consider, why would we want this? Why would we want an encrypted email service? What are the benefits that we have from it? Uh, What are the benefits we get for keeping everything open? Um, it's not an easy interview. It's pretty tough, actually. And I didn't just want to let Andy walk into the end zone, but I, I think by pressing him a little bit, we really start to put these uh, arguments for encryption to the test. And hopefully by the time you finish listening, you'll come away with a better understanding of where this push and where this movement is uh, and, and whether we should get on board or not. So I hope you'll enjoy. Here's my conversation with Andy. Yet. Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. Good to see you again. So for those who are um, new to Proton or have just a vague idea of what it is, what is ProtonMail? Well, I think, uh, you know, Proton is a company uh, that is trying to offer the same services as, say, you know, Google, Apple, or some of the other big tech companies you might know, uh, but with a different business model. Uh, you know, we simply believe in putting privacy first, uh, giving you control over your data. And we do that by having rigorous encryption across all of our services. So whether it's Proton Mail, Proton Calendar, uh, Proton Drive, uh, or you know our Proton VPN service, um, what Proton is is an alternative to big tech services uh, that really put you in control of your data. Okay, great. And so, um, can you give like just a one-on-one definition of encryption? Maybe you can do it like in thirty seconds or so. <laughs> uh, this is a tough one. Uh, well, I think uh, encryption is a complicated topic to you know explain, um, but you know it's math. And the rules of mathematics uh, are kind of constant over time. Once they work, uh, they work. I think what is more valuable to explain is what encryption does for you, right? Uh, so when you talk about end-to-end encryption, which is what you know um, Proton uh, uses in all of our services, uh, take ProtonMail for example. End-to-end encryption, what it does is ensure that we, as a service provider, don't have the ability uh, to read your emails and read your data, uh, and that means I cannot sell your data to advertisers. Uh, and I can also not give your data to, say, third parties like governments that may request it. Uh, so it's a technical means to ensure the privacy of your communications. So, Andy, I use Gmail. I view email kind of as a postcard, right? I send it. I'm fully aware that people can you know, potentially read it. I don't want the federal government snooping in or any government snooping into my email. Um, but it's not like I have like you know state secrets in there. And, um, and I don't mind if it's something like a Gmail advertises to me. So, uh, and I feel like that's how most people feel. That's why I see most of the emails, at least 
you know, that come into me are Gmail when they're not corporate. So why would someone go with a encrypted email service over that? Like, I, I guess it seems like it's a lot of effort to switch. So why would someone do that? Well, I think the question is, you know, why should we accept the status quo, right? Uh, you're right. Email is a postcard, but why should it be a postcard? You know, um, the technology to make email not a postcard uh, definitely exists. Uh, you know, the encryption is possible. Uh, so if you have the choice between sending postcard, postcards versus sending encrypted sealed letters, um, why would you choose uh, the postcard option? And that's really what Proton is about, is to give people this alternative. Uh, and, you know, uh, actually switching is not very hard. If you want to use ProtonMail today, uh, we have an easy switch tool. You can actually, you know, um, log in with one click, uh, put in your Gmail information, and it'll pull, uh, thanks to, you know, GDPR, uh, your contacts, your emails, your calendar uh, from Google directly to the Proton ecosystem. Uh, so in fact, it's not hard to switch. Uh, and I think we shouldn't be so accepting of the status quo that emails have to be, you know, um, postcards. We must have advertisement in order to get email. And we need to let Google have access to all of our information just to be online. Uh, you know, this is... Um, uh, I guess if you have no choice, uh, you would live with that. But if there is a choice, uh, I don't see why anybody would tolerate that. Well, I'll give you one example, which is convenience. I mean, if I'm in Gmail, uh, it links to calendar. Sometimes I book a flight and it will auto-populate in Google Calendar. Uh, the search is really good. I mean, it's created by a search company. Search is good. Uh, and I like the interface. So again, like, yeah, we don't accept the status quo, but the status quo does give us convenience. Yes, for sure there is convenience, uh, but you're also giving up a lot, right? You're giving up your most sensitive intimate data. Uh, you're opting into a surveillance machine, uh, which has, you know, um, very negative consequences for society and also for the security of your data. Uh, and that is actually Proton's mission. You know, our goal is to make the user experience functionally equivalent or as close to as possible where you don't have to give up convenience to also get privacy. I think the kind of, you know, the, the notion that you need to trade off privacy in order to have convenience, uh, this is ultimately a false notion. And this is one that through technology, uh, you know, we should be motivated to solve that problem. Uh, and I believe in the past, there definitely was a gap. But I think as, you know, te- private technologies, um, ProtonMail and others continue to, to develop, you'll see that over time, that gap actually shrinks, right? You know, the search experience, uh, the mail calendar integrations, you know, these are all things uh, that, you know, today Proton can do and will only do better in the future. So if I get an email from like a flight confirmation that goes to my ProtonMail, it will show up in the Proton calendar? Uh, we're not reading your emails uh, to do that right away. Um, okay. But hmm. um, we are now starting to auto-add the ICS uh, calendar invites. Uh, so in fact, uh, today the integration is already working for, you know, we are adding, uh, you know, events directly into the calendar. Uh, and this is things are, you know, we will continue adding more and more of these features. Uh, and that's part of Proton's move towards an ecosystem, right? The reason for integrating mail, calendar, and drive together is to actually support those integrations. Yeah. Now you talk about um, opting into a surveillance machine. Uh, you know, we hear a lot of this, like, and sometimes this language gets alarmist with like surveillance capitalism, for instance. So. How, how much surveillance is actually happening to the average user? Well, uh, I think it's not so much the surveillance that has actually happened, uh, Ling, but the potential surveillance that this enables, right? Um, and if you, for example, look at the amount of data that Google or Facebook or even Apple has on you today, it is far more data than what the East German government had on East German citizens, you know, through the Stasi, mm-hmm. right? It's, you know, yeah, way more. Funny. It, 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 I was it's, just, yeah, 
I'm here in Germany. I was just at the Stasi the museum in the Stasi headquarters from like a week and a half ago. And I was like, oh, this is all good. Sorry, I was there a week and a half ago. And I was like, oh, this is all going to be uh, good material to speak with Andy about. Because yeah. that level of surveillance was unbelievable. But like that was done to individuals in dossiers that they would then go and use to sort of keep the general population in line. And that's not exactly what's being done here with, uh, you know, ads, get it showing ads based off of even some of the information that you've sent. It's, you know, or, or you know, and I would say it seems like most most people that are emailing or don't have the government reading their emails the same way the Stasi would read and tap, wiretap everything. I mean, they were dressing up as, as tourists with cameras to take pictures of people in the street. And I don't know if that's the same thing. Well, you know, uh, Google doesn't need to dress up as a tourist in the street, right? Because they're already <laughs> on your phone and on your devices and scanning all your information anyways, right? They have automatic right. ways of doing that. Uh, and I think the way to look at this is, you know, um, imagine the real-life version of Google. It's someone who follows you around, listening to all your conversations, writing down everywhere you've been, uh, take, keeping a record of all your purchases, uh, and putting it into a little, you know, notebook. Uh, you would mm-hmm. never tolerate the real-life version of Google. So why should we tolerate the online version of Google? Uh, and because... I'll give you an example. I mean, by the way, I'm not, I'm just trying to, to, you know, hash this out because I actually think there's a lot of merit to what you're doing, but I want to make sure that you get the arguments that Google would make just so, just so that we're, you know, able to really get to the heart of the matter. Um, It's not at the end of the day that the Google that's taking notes on us is not a person, you know, it is an algorithm. And if a Google engineer were to accept or to access that, you know, notepad of data, which I don't deny they have, they would get fired. So it seems to me like it's a lesser degree. Well, this, this you know, this goes on the topic of kind of, you know, algorithms, right? And, uh, you know, what is more responsible, you know, a person or a computer algorithm? Uh, I would argue that actually uh, the algorithm is probably the bigger risk um, because as we have seen, it can do things that are completely, you know, um, unintended in terms of consequences. Uh, and, you know, and today we're in the world that's run by algorithms. And I would think that actually, you know, the person would be able to make a moral judgment. The algorithm simply does what it's trained to do. Uh, and, you know, the fact that it's an algorithm and not a person on the other end doesn't actually comfort me. And I don't think, you know, should comfort us. Well, so what what sort of, what are the sort of unintended consequences that the algorithms have done when they've gotten a hold of people's data? Well, uh, let's take social media and Facebook for example, right? You know, okay. a, an example of an algorithm is the so-called notion of you know filter bubbles. So let's say you are a right or left-leaning you know um, political uh, person. Uh, well, you will end up clicking on content uh, that you know more aligns with your views. Uh, and guess what? Uh, the content that gets the most views and gets the most traction on social media is the stuff on, from the far left and from the far right. So the algorithm right. says, okay, uh, you know, you clearly lean that way. Uh, and then it inadvertently shows you more and more extreme content. And this over time leads to the polarization of, of society because the people right. on the right have more right views. The people on the left have more left views. And it's the algorithm that's constantly feeding them information to make their views, you know, more extreme. Uh, so I think this is an example of how algorithms, you know, can go out of control. And this is just, I think, scratching the surface here. Yeah. And I wouldn't call, I mean, that's not, I think filter bubbles, I think filter bubbles have been somewhat disproven. Um, that you do come into contact with a lot of, inf- of viewpoints from the other side in, in on social media. The thing is though, I, and I think you hit on it, that social media does amplify the stuff that's the most radical. And that's the type of stuff from the other side that you see. And it makes you not be able to find common ground with people. We've had a couple of discussions about that here in the show over the past year. Um, but that being said, it's very different. Like your personal data is, you know, that's part of the business model there. 
I don't think Gmail, you know, tracking your data is going to make you send more and more extreme views out to people. So what could be the potential unintended consequence here? Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, what Google is doing is not just Gmail, right? They're taking all of your information from diverse sources, which is every single platform that you use. Uh, and essentially, they're building a profile on you. Um, and then they're using that information to decide, you know, what they show you, what, what you don't show you, and to kind of, you know, inform your worldview. So when you think about search and advertising, uh, this is basically, you know, control over what you buy, uh, what you think, what political ads you see. Uh, this is a high level of control over, you know, um, our day-to-day lives. Uh, and of course, you know, today it's Google. Maybe you trust Google, right? Uh, but the data is out there forever. Uh, you know, yeah. there's, there's for, the, for the record, I do not trust Google. Um, I, you know, it's a trade-off for sure. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, your information is literally one merger and acquisition from going overseas. I think the example, the classic example of this is, you know, the grinder, the gay dating app that got bought by the Chinese, right? It became a national security issue. Uh, so the thing about data online is you can't take it back. Uh, you know, once it's out there, it's out there. And the ways that it can be used and misused in the future is, you know, completely, you know, out of your control. I think when people were uh, signing for Facebook and signing for Facebook groups uh, back in 2010, 2012, uh, they didn't even imagine that Cambridge Analytica could be the outcome of that data. Uh, and this is the thing is that, you know, we don't really understand uh, how some of this data can be used in the future. And uh, we're today freely giving it up. Uh, and I think that is, you know, really the behavior that I think we need to take a step back from and say, hey, you know, maybe this is too much. Uh, maybe we should have control of our data instead of just freely, you know, giving it up. Right. Cambridge Analytic, I mean, this stuff might influence to some extent, like the way that you think, but they're not, it's not like, you know, in that social network movie where they're like controlling you. Wouldn't you agree? Well, uh, depending on, you know, who you believe and, and, and who you talk to, uh, you know, Cambridge right. Analytica could have swung some elections, right? Uh, and I think that's highly doubtful. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah it, yes, it's true. But um, I think it goes without saying that this data I could, don't think it, what they did was good, but yeah. Yeah, go ahead. but I think it goes without saying that this data could swing elections, uh, you know, if misused. Uh, and, um, you know, Cambridge Analytica, of course, is one example, but you can kind of see this taken to the logical extreme, right? Uh, and we don't need to look very far or even imagine too far to see what this extreme looks like. Uh, if you look at a country that also has tech giants uh, that are per- pervasive in, in, in everyday life uh, with basically monopoly power, uh, that's China uh, with, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, and these other big, you know, Chinese tech giants. Uh, and there you ca- clearly see an example of what happens if a tech company's data uh, is put at the service of a government actor uh, that right. is, you know, bent on control and supervision of a, a population of one billion people. Uh, so this is a logical conclusion. This is the risk of what could happen. Uh, and of course, that seems very far away from us, uh, you know, maybe here in Europe and here in the US. Uh, but why would you, you know, freely give this power over us out there to the public in a way that we cannot control, right? I think it's 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 something that um, should concern all of us, really. Uh, Andy, there is a difference, though, between the US and, and, the, and China case, because it's the government, right? At the end of the day, the United States government or governments in Europe aren't going to have population control the same way that the Chinese Communist Party does. So that's that's where the distinction is. It's the party, really, not the technology, or maybe a combination of both, but it starts with the party. Yes, it always starts with the people, um, but technology enables you to do this, you know, at massive scale and at very high risk, right? I, you know, I, I can give you an example of another country uh, that uh, 30 years ago, you know, on paper and also in practice uh, was a democracy 
in our competitive elections. Uh, this was Russia, right? Um, and, you know, uh, you see how this can actually shift over time. I'm not saying that, you know, um, in Western Europe, we're destined to follow the same trajectory. Um, but there are definitely some countries, uh, you know, which uh, in the past we might have considered to be democracies, uh, which today you'd be hard pressed to consider a democracy. Uh, and you can see kind of the danger of this data because this data, you know, that's out there today will still be there in 30 years, uh, and can potentially be mis- misused. So this is why I think, you know, um, from me, from a society, you know, uh, standpoint, uh, privacy does matter. You know, we should care about it. Um, because without privacy, you don't really have true freedom of speech, freedom of information. Uh, and without that, you know, actually democracy doesn't really work. Uh, so I find it as fundamental to safeguarding democracy, you know, in the 21st century, which is the digital century. That's right. So why? In e- so you started with email. Um, I get Proton mails, like people sign up to big technology with it. Um, I have an account, um, though I don't use it very often. Maybe I should use it more often. Why did you start out with email versus? Because I, I feel like messaging. You know, I use Signal. So there's I, and Signal has disappearing messages. It's encrypted. I think that's much better compared to the other alternatives. But email less of a compelling event for me to move over. So why start with email? It really comes down to the notion of what email represents. Um, today, when you look at email, it's not a communication tool. Uh, people think it's a communication tool, but actually email as a communication tool probably stopped you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago. Uh, what email actually is, is identity. Uh, and if I were to give you the choice between losing your passport or losing your email, uh, losing your email is probably far more inconvenient because it is the thing that you have online that links together the rest of your online life, your whole digital existence. Uh, so when you choose to use email uh, from Google and you use Gmail, uh, what you're doing is not so much you know, using a Google tool to communicate. What you actually are doing is saying, I'm going to give Google control of my identity because that Gmail account is your Google account. And that is a thing that Google uses to tie the information they have on their entire platform across all their services to your real-life identity. And in some ways, you know, um, the use of ProtonMail instead of Gmail is to say, I'm going to opt out of this system uh, and I'm going to have my identity, you know, um, and I refuse to have a file for myself, uh, you know, in Google. Uh, And that's why we started with email, because it's, in my opinion, the highest leverage way for people to break free of the system. So what can Google do with Gmail that you can't do? I'm not talking about functionality. I'm talking about privacy wise. Uh, so, uh, um, like what, what do you mean by that exactly? Like they can read our messages or what, when you have an encrypted email service, what can't you do that others can't? Cause your selling point is what you can't do. So from a technical standpoint, um, I would say that, uh, you know, um, Google could actually uh, encrypt uh, all the emails on their system. Uh, they could do you know, everything that we do because ten- technologically, nothing prevents them, right? Um, I would say the key difference between Proton and Google is really the incentive structure that is in place. You know, Google is a company uh, that today uh, you know, is making 90% of its revenue from advertising. And advertising uh, works best when it's contextualized and when it's personalized. Uh, so... In other words, Google has a $200 billion incentive uh, to really get up to the line of creepy in terms of you know, abusing your data because that's what makes them money. So when it comes to, say, making advertisers happy as opposed to protecting your privacy, 
uh, well, the people that are paying $200 billion are the one that are going to get the final say. Uh, so I think the difference is business model and alignment of interest between, you know, users and companies. Okay, but go, but, but more to the question in terms of like the, the practically what they can do. So do they have like product managers that can go on and read, read your emails? Do they have like an ad system that targets based off of the emails? And that, and can that, or can't that happen in ProtonMail? Well, uh, Proton, for one, is not an advertising business. So, you know, um, we don't have user profiles. We don't link any information to real life identities. Uh, you know, um, we're not looking uh, closely at, we're not, we're not scanning your information. We're not uh, monetizing any information. We're not serving any advertisements. So, you know, all the things that Google does enable its ad business, um, you know, we don't do any of that. Uh, right. And I think that's, a, you know, a, a very clear and very big distinction. And we also cannot one day say change our mind and decide we want to do that. Uh, because once data has been encrypted with zero access encryption, once your inbox is encrypted, um, because it's zero access, we don't have the means to say, oh, you know, um, Proton's been sold, the, the new owners really want to mine data and do that as a business model. Uh, it's not possible to actually decrypt the data after it has been encrypted. Uh, so I think it's not only do we not do it today, we are prevented from doing that in the future um, by the nature of the, of the way the uh, tech works. So nobody inside Proton can read the emails of people. Yeah, yeah, we have no means. The, yeah, exactly. Right. We we have no means uh, to decrypt uh, because we simply do not possess the encryption keys that you know would be required for us to decrypt user inboxes. But Gmail, they can. Uh, yeah, of course. How big of an issue is the government? I want to go back to this government question because we talk a lot about. So we've talked about like surveillance state, but we've talked all about that in terms of the context of advertising. Let's talk about it in terms of governments being able to access uh, email. There was the whole Snowden revelations that showed that the government was spying on a lot more of us than we thought. Do you think that's still the case? And, and how often is the government going into people's email inbox and just reading what they, whatever they want? I think they're doing it probably way more frequently than we imagine. And you know, um, if you take the U.S. for example, where you know Google space, Google is an American company, right? Um, there's things like national security letters. There's things like FISA courts. Um, there's many ways in which they can, you know, get direct access to people's inboxes and get this information. So I would say actually in the U.S. is probably quite common um, because the means to doing it are quite easy. And, you know, FISA courts are rubber stamping exercises. Do you have any data in terms of how, like, is there any public, publicly available data in terms of how often this actually happens? Like if you're an average user and if you're not like, you know, in ISIS, like how often is this? How, how easy is this to do? Well, Google does publish statistics. Uh, so they do have data on this. And we know it's, you know, in the, in the millions of requests uh, per year. Okay. Right? Uh, ah. This is the ones that they publish and the ones that they're able to be transparent about, right? There could also be some that, you know, they're simply not allowed to disclose um, because they receive a national security letter. Uh, so, you know, um, clearly uh, there are, you know, a large number of government access requests. And it is something that happens, you know, quite routinely. Um, now, who they're targeting, you know, how they're targeting, are they doing it within, you know, uh, the confines of the law? Uh, this is hard to say, right? I think, you know, Snowden showed that at least in 2013, it was being done on a widespread basis with very, you know, active, very practical checks and balances. Uh, maybe it's different today, um, but, you know, um, I would be, you know, skeptical if it has radically changed since, you know, Snowden made his relevations uh, public. Okay. Andy Yen is with us. He is the CEO of Proton Mail. We're going to take a quick break, talk a little bit more about the company that he operates and whether its incentives are different than the other big tech companies' incentives that we've discussed. 
We'll also take a look at you know uh, some of the other products they offer. And then going to get into some of your Twitter questions. There were some questions, good questions from Twitter uh, that showed up when I asked for them. So thank you for those. And then we will finally, we'll talk a little bit about Apple uh, and its decision to encrypt uh, iCloud. So lots of interesting stuff. Don't go away. We'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast, second half, our last half of the show for the year. So we're closing out 2022 strong here with Andy Yen, CEO of Proton Mail. Andy, first of all, why did you start this company? Did you like see what Snowden did and say, okay, I have to create an antidote to that? What was your, what was the compelling event to start the company? Well, I think uh, like many good tech products, ultimately Proton Mail was a service that I myself wanted. Um, you know, um, back in 2014, when we first started, if you wanted to have, you know, um, privacy via your email, uh, you didn't really have much of a choice, right? Uh, you could self-host your email, which was, you know, finding a cloud service provider, which back then wasn't even that common, installing your own email software, and then being the administrator of that. Um, or if you want to be online, you can go to Google or Yahoo or some of the other companies that all monetize in the same way. Uh, so my thinking was simply, there must be a third way. There must be a better way. There must be a way for I can, you know, have something that's so easy to use. Uh, my parents can figure it out, uh, but at the same time, uh, still preserve, you know, privacy. And that was the concept of ProtonMail was to see if we could, you know, bring together, uh, you know, uh, the business model, the technology, and also the user experience to, you know, make that happen. Okay, cool. And so, when did you found it? This is back in 2014, so it was about a year after the Snowden uh, leaks, and that, you know, really, I think that really got people thinking, you know, myself included. Um, how many people does the company have? Uh, today, we have slightly over 400 uh, employees uh, around the world. Okay. So it's a sizable company. Yeah, it's, 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 a, yeah. it's grown a lot in recent years. And your business model? Like, you're also a company. I mean, Google's a company, you're a company. Yeah. So, you know, your, your objective also is to make money off of email users just a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's extremely important, right? Because if you don't have a sustainable way uh, to make money actually the business won't be around for a long time. And you know, I think as a user, you shouldn't actually trust a company that doesn't have a way to make money. Uh, now, the question is, how do you make money you know, in a way that aligns incentives with customers? And you know, in Google's case, uh, as a Google user, you're not Google's customer. Uh, you're actually the product that Google is selling to its real customers, which is the advertisers. Uh, and that's a business alignment of interest. And in Proton's case, you know, of course, uh, you know, our users, uh, they actually pay us. So we keep the lights on through the users who pay us. And because of that, uh, my only incentive is to protect user privacy because that's why they pay us. Uh, and I think that alignment is very important to, you know, make sure that you can always keep users' best interests at heart. Okay, so it's a paid product. Yeah. Um, what what has been the the growth curve? I mean, I'm kind of, I, I get a sense that um, as people have become more aware of this uh people are more and more moving towards encrypted services like i just in terms of messaging on the phone uh i never would have thought 
to use an encrypted messaging app a few years ago. And now almost all of my messaging happens in Signal, like I mentioned. So are you seeing a similar growth curve? Yeah, well, I think uh, just to come back on your previous comment, it's not exactly a paid product. It's a freemium product. Uh, okay. And that means most people actually don't pay us, right? But the power users that want more features uh, will pay us. Uh, and, you know, um, like most freemium models, there's a small percentage of uh, paying users. Uh, and I think that is very, very important because that ties directly to growth. Uh, okay. The fact that it's uh, a freemium model means that we've basically made privacy encryption technology uh, very accessible. So anybody anywhere in the world, even if they don't have any financial resources, can actually get on the system and get you know private information, you know, get the private information protected. Uh, and this has uh, you know uh, led to what I can only call you know very um, exponential growth. When we started in 2014, there were maybe you know 10,000, uh, 20,000 uh, people on this on the platform. Uh, today, if you look at all proton services, uh, we're talking in excess of 70 million accounts. Uh, and okay. most of these uh, came on just in the past couple of years. Uh, so I think uh, you're right. There has been a dramatic shift in people's attitudes towards privacy. Uh, and there is now more and more demand for services that actually you know, give you control over your data. And I think that's a positive thing. It's, uh, it's long overdue, but it's great that it's actually happening now. She so said most of these came on in the past couple of years. When did you hit 35 million users? Was it like last year or? Uh, this was probably, you know, um, within the last two years, let's say. Two years. Okay. That's wild. Yeah. Um, okay. And the last thing I want to ask you about your product, then we're going to move on to some Twitter questions. Uh, you don't just do email. Uh, actually, when, when we met, you mentioned that you do like Google Drive-like capabilities. Like one of the things that would prevent me from switching over is the fact that I love the fact that like, you know, I have doc, Google Docs and all that stuff, but you have a version of that as well. Yeah. Well, I think I first want to kind of maybe cover the notion of switching. Uh, you know, people tend to think of privacy and not private as kind of mutually exclusive, right? Like, you know, if I'm a privacy person, it means I don't have Facebook, I don't have Instagram, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, uh, LinkedIn, uh, I don't use any, any, any of the services. Uh, and I think the more practical way of, of looking at this is really a coexistence. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Of course, I use ProtonMail. Uh, but, you know, I've got my old Yahoo account as well. Uh, and when I'm in the McDonald's, let's say in Zurich, trying to get access to the public Wi-Fi, I'm not giving them my ProtonMail account. I'm giving them my Yahoo account because I know they're going to sell that and it's going to get spammed, right? Uh, so I think uh, this idea of private uh, versus not private is kind of a false dichotomy. I think it's a, it's a coexistence. You know, people... Um, so it's a tough sell to say, hey, let's, you know, add one more inbox. I mean, a lot of people have like a Yahoo, a Hotmail, a Gmail, a couple of Gmails going through like the different, so... But if you have so many, what's one more, right? right. Uh, and I think... Well, it's it, more work, but... Okay, but answer that question about the, the drive stuff, because I feel like that's important. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, coming to the question of drive, uh, you know, of course, um, we need to uh, have documents and all the functionality. Uh, now, you know, Google Drive has been out for, you know, more than a decade, right? Um, and they have a big head start on us. Uh, so, of course, it'll take us some time to get all this functionality. Uh, but the Drive product, as is out there already today, uh, is actually already doing quite well. Uh, you know, we're already past, uh, you know, um, 1 million files uploaded, uh, you know, per day. And it's only been, you know, um, a few months since we launched the product. And what Drive is uh, doing is it gives you a way to, you know, store stuff on the cloud with end-to-end encryption. And I think that's actually, uh, you know, a fantastic. It doesn't have document storage yet, uh, but that's, of course, on the roadmap. Uh, and if you, let's say you have a very sensitive document, 
Um, in the past, you had two choices. Uh, you could put it locally on your phone or on your computer or in a USB stick, uh, and that keeps it safe. But if you lose your phone or lose your USB stick, uh, you're, you're screwed. If you're in a different country without access to your USB stick, you're also uh, in trouble, right? Uh, so, you know, cloud is, of course, convenient. But the issue with Google Cloud is, of course, then you're giving Google access to all your files. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, the innovation really, what makes, uh, you know, Proton Drive uh, super interesting is, uh, you keep the privacy. Your data is still confidential and, you know, we cannot decrypt it. But it's accessible anywhere in the world from any device. Uh, and I think there definitely is a happy medium that, you know, can be achieved there where you get convenience and privacy at the same time. And this is why we're pursuing that product. And I think it's, you know, something that um, could be very valuable. Uh, so you don't have like a composer yet, but that's something you're working on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that is uh, in progress. Okay. What's the ETA on that? Uh, uh, it's hard to say, right? Uh, the, you know, we're a community-driven company. It depends on what community wants. Uh, and I can tell you from the, kind of the initial reaction, uh, you know, Twitter, Reddit, and people who have emailed us, um, they want the composer and the document editor, um, but a lot of people just want better photo support. Uh, so I think we okay. have to balance the two to see what is, you know, higher priority. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that, about how your community drives what you build. Is it like forums or something, or like how does that work? Well, uh, it comes back to the history. Uh, Proton as at the very beginning, uh, was a crowdfunding project. So it mm. was launched from you know, 10,000 people donating half a million dollars uh, to crowdfund ProtonMail. Uh, Not each, right? Uh, no. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, <laughs> no, but overall, right? Yeah, okay. uh, and that was, I think, uh, you know, a super fascinating way to begin the business. And we're today probably one of the only crowdfunding companies that you know, started crowdfunding and then you know, was able to be around and grow yeah. over, the, over the years. Actually delivered. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually delivered on the promise, right? I'm still uh, waiting for my fridge with the mm-hmm. Spoonbox yeah. Kickstarter. Yeah, I, I remember <laughs> it's funny because, you know, back um, when we, uh, you know, were doing crowdfunding, we were uh, selling what we call lifetime accounts, right? Which, is, of course, is very highly speculative to buy a lifetime account for a crowdfunding project that hasn't even launched yet. Um, right. But I think those people, um, at the price that we sold them at, uh, definitely got their money's worth. Um, and being a crowdfunding company means that it's very community-driven. Uh, and because the community is what pays us. So every product that we build, every feature that we build, uh, it's really driven by community feedback. It's whatever people say they want the most, um, we build it. So, you know, when they ask for calendar, we did calendar. Uh, they asked for file storage, we did file storage. Uh, and even today on Drive, it's, you know, through Reddit, it's through Twitter, it's through people contacting, contacting us and customer support. It's through people who answer our annual surveys and our polls. Uh, you know, literally, you tell us to do it, and, we're, and then we're going to do it. And I think that's how you know companies should be run. It makes product management, you know, very easy, of course, because um, my roadmap is very clear, right? It's what the community tells me they want. That's like the uh, the dream of Web three, right? The users become stakeholders. Except you don't, you know, I don't think you're issuing any of those FTX tokens. Yeah, I think uh, you don't need a. Um, a, uh, you know, scammy cryptocurrency in order to achieve this. You know, you can just ask them directly right. and uh, even without uh-huh. coins, they'll tell you what they want. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, let's talk a little bit about the news. So Apple is uh, offering um, encryption to iCloud and people like Walt, Mos- Walt Mossberg had talked about this iCloud loophole where like Apple talked about like what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone, but because iCloud wasn't encrypted, uh, there are, you know, different government entities, I believe, that could have gotten in there. At least that's what I think the argument is. What's your take on the fact that Apple is going all, all iCloud um, for the, all, all encryption for the iCloud backup? Good sign? Uh, yeah, I think, of course, it's a positive sign. It's probably, you know, um, good for, you know, um, consumers. But I think as with anything that Apple does, 
you got to take it with a grain of salt, right? And kind of understand, you know, um, their, their, their motivations. And at the end of the day, I think the question that, you know, uh, we ought to ask ourselves is, you know, what does Apple stand for? What is Apple's values, right? Uh, and when it comes to privacy and Apple, uh, the way I think about it and the way I've seen it and kind of what their actions have demonstrated is it's privacy um, when it's convenient and doesn't hurt the bottom line. Uh, and I'll give you kind of a quick example of this, right? Uh, you know, this end-to-end encryption of, uh, you know, um, iCloud, um, at least the file storage. Uh, I'm not really sure. I would be highly doubtful if Apple will roll this out in China. Now, China is a country where, for example, uh, you know, um, Apple is already putting data centers with Chinese uh, joint venture partners in order to give, you know, Chinese government access to, you know, um, Apple customer data in China. So, our relationship with privacy seems to be, you know, we'll do it when it's convenient and when it makes us more money. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, um, being private or being people first versus, you know, profits, uh, profits tends to win most of the time. Uh, and there's, you know, been many examples in, in recent years that, you know, um, really shows kind of how they take that approach, right? Uh, you know, I think, um, how does Apple define privacy? Apple really defines privacy as, you know, nobody can abuse your data except for us, right? Uh, <laughs> And yeah. the role definition should be, and the problem definition is, no one can abuse your data, uh, period. So I think it's very important when we look at privacy announcements from big tech companies to not let them redefine what privacy means, because that's actually the fastest way to lose privacy. Yeah, it's interesting. There's no way that they're going to end up uh, uh, closing that off to China. I mean, I feel like reporting is, has suggested that that's basically the whole deal <laughs> with them, is that there is a backdoor there for the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, and, um, and, and, then, and then, you know, Apple is also not open source, right? Uh, so, you know, how it works, what it actually does, uh, there's no way to independently verify. Um, so, you know, I think that's also something that makes it quite a bit different from other, you know, encryption software, like, you know, Signal, uh, ProtonMail, ProtonDrive, these are open source uh, softwares. And, you know, that way you as a consumer can be very confident that it actually does what it's advertising to do. Yeah, okay, so here is a tweet from Tim Sweeney who runs uh, Epic Games. It's a notorious Apple uh, opponent. Tim, if you want to come on the show, uh, you're always welcome. He says, Apple's move to support iCloud end-to-end encryption is a great one, provided it's not a gambit to announce this and then offer to trade it away in secret talks with U.S. officials in exchange for their dropping antitrust legislation and enforcement. That timing, dot, dot, dot. And then he says, my view is that the proper boundary for absolute privacy in which a company can't look or listen, even if compelled, is the boundary between personal effects and personal conversations and published information and public conversations. What's your take on what he has to say? Well, I think, uh, of course, Epic and Apple have been locked in a fight for a long time. I mean, they are not friends. Yeah, yeah. We're also yeah. locked in that fight as well, right? Um, because, you know, I, we have, we've also been very vocal in criticizing some of Apple's, you know, App Store policies. Um, right. Do I think it's part of some secret negotiation, you know, with the government to trade away? Uh, you know, um, my personal opinion, uh, no, right? It but, seems you know, a bit out there, yeah. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I also can't know uh, too much what is happening, you know, uh, behind closed doors. Uh, it's, I think, it's it's quite interesting because if you maybe remember back less than a year ago, Apple was saying, you know, we're going to do some special, uh, you know, client-side backend scanning in order to, you know, uh, make, uh, you know, child sexual abuse materials, uh, you know, um, uh, let's say detectable uh, by default, and we're going to proactively, you know, send that information to law enforcement, right? Uh, so it, it seems a bit kind of, you know, odd that the same company 
that was thinking about, you know, proactively reporting their users to the government is now coming around and saying, oh, well, now we're going to encrypt everything, right? Uh, so um, it's a, you know, even for a company like Apple, it's a bit of a, you know, um, big uh, turnaround. Uh, I think, you right. know, some people are going to get a flash from that. Uh, so, uh, and Apple is huge. Uh, it's based in the U.S., uh, clearly has a lot of discussions with law enforcement, uh, and um, there could be things, you know, um, going on behind the scenes, but uh, I would prefer to, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. But I will, On that front. Yeah, right. but I will say that, you know, um, Apple's previous privacy moves, um, yeah. if you look at them a bit more cynically, uh, you kind of see what is, you know, at play. So I'll give you an example of kind of them locking out uh, third-party trackers, right? Apple said, oh, this is a move for us to, you know, protect your privacy, we're going to disable third-party trackers. And of course, Facebook, you know, cries foul. Um, but then you dig deeper. And it turns out that, uh, you know, Apple's not blocking all trackers. There are some trackers that are still there. Uh, and it's the first-party ones. It's the one that Apple controls. Uh, and then at the same time, you see Apple building on ads business and pushing ads, yeah. you know, into the settings, into other applications that they control in the App Store, right? And Apple's, you know, ad business goes from 300 million in 2017 uh, to 4 billion today and a projected 30 billion in, in 2026. So when Apple said locking out third party trackers, uh, you know, their actual motivation, uh, you know, wasn't privacy. Their actual motivation was, I'm going to, you know, uh, lock out my surveillance capitalism, uh, you know, a competition so that when I go do it ads, I have a clean run and, I, and I've already cleaned the field. Uh, and so this is why I think, you know, um, Tim is probably right to be a bit suspicious and some people are a bit suspicious. Right. How do you, Andy, um, let's go back to the um, child uh, sexually exploitative material. How does Proton handle that stuff? Because, you know, it seems like folks that would be in that world would want an encrypted service. I mean, it's sort of like you've built the perfect tool for them. Well, I think it doesn't matter whether it's encrypted or not encrypted. You know, um, folks out there uh, who are doing this type of abuse um, are going to use uh, services. Uh, you know, um, they use uh, Google Drive, for example. Uh, they for sure use Apple uh, as well. Uh, it's a issue that all platforms have to deal with. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, when we get reports of such things, uh, you know, it's illegal in Switzerland. Uh, we follow the rules around that. Um, but there's kind of this notion that in order to prevent this entirely, you must, you know, um, disable encryption or you must backdoor encryption. Uh, and the way to think about this is, you know, of course, if you had a world without privacy, it's probably more quote unquote secure, right? Uh, but, you know, if you ask the people in North Korea that live in such a regime, they probably don't feel more secure. Uh, so, you know, as a society, if we are for freedom of speech, freedom of information, and democracy. Uh, you know, we also need to tolerate some level of privacy. Right, but how can you how can you catch how can you catch people? What methods can you use? Well, you know, short of breaking uh, encryption, there is many different ways. So um, I'll give you kind of an example. You know, today, if you were to look at let's say you know some file metadata, so who uploaded the file? Did it get uploaded over Tor IP? You know, um, what is the pattern of access? How is it being shared? Uh, actually, a lot of this information can, in fact, be leveraged uh, to, you know, give you very accurate predictions of, you know, which accounts, uh, you know, are abusive. And these are techniques, these are not new techniques, right? This was used, of course, uh, for, you know, um, anti-spam, because how do you know if an email is spam or not spam? Uh, and, you know, uh, some of these same behavioral techn techniques, uh, you know, um, can actually get you quite far. Um, and will it be, let's say, as effective as, you know, um, 
checking every single file? Uh, no, right? You know, if you want to stop, for example, uh, you know, um, bombs being sent in the mail, you open every single package and you read it, right? Uh, but you know, we don't do that because that is simply against you know our, our values of privacy uh, that you know we accept in society today. Uh, and this is exactly the thing. You know, um, we of course know that. Uh, probably by allowing encryption, we'll be less good at detecting some of these things. But that's still an overall benefit to society because privacy gives us so much more in terms of freedom and democracy and you know, civil liberties. Uh, and that's a balance that I think you know, regulators always need to be very careful about striking. Yeah. So we got some great questions uh, for you from, from Twitter. One of them is from uh, Neville uh, Lahiru. Uh, and this is a pretty good one. Uh, it talks about... Um, what are your thoughts on the whole government versus encryption matter? And if there's a practical middle ground to it, especially when the fingers pointed at national security issues. So it builds off of what we were just talking about. Uh, obviously, the government's going to want to you know, have stuff a little bit more open and there could be national security risks that people are using. You know, you're going to you admit it, you're going to be a little less good at it. You know, it probably goes across the board. Um, but you're, you're you make a compelling argument for encryption. Is there is there some common ground? folks can find. Yeah. Well, I think we are already at the common ground. And, uh, you know, this goes back to... What is that? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. So so this goes back to, I think, you know, um, the incentives of governments, incentives of private sectors, and the role of legislation. You know, um, when you pass a law today, it's really to fix you know, something that markets are not able to address. That, that's, that's the main reason for passing a law in a capitalistic you know, economy, right? Uh, and take terrorism or, you know, even child abuse, right? Uh, is there any tech company in the world, even the most evil one, for example, um, that would want that on their platform? Uh, I would say not. It's a legal, it's a PR, it's a moral and ethical issue. Uh, so the notion that, you know, um, private sector companies like Proton, like Apple, like Facebook, you know, you name it, um, is not already doing the best that they can do to try to tackle this problem. It's just, you know, folly, right? You know, there is no need for government to say, oh, you need to do more on terrorism because everybody is already doing the maximum they can, right? You know, the, the absolute disaster for any tech company would be to find that their technology was used in the next 9-11. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, I think there's very common ground in that everybody agrees these things are objectionable and everybody is doing the best that they can, uh, you know, within technology possible uh, to tackle that issue. Uh, and that's something that, you know, I'm not saying that it'll, it maybe doesn't let everybody in D.C. sleep easy at night. Maybe it keeps the FBI up at night. But it's something that we in society at large can feel comfortable and, and probably confident in because, you know, everybody, even at Proton, we have dozens of engineers, you know, working full time just on this issue. Uh, and so I, so I believe the common ground and the alignment actually is already there. Okay, great. Going, going uh, along these lines, uh, another question we had from, and by the way, shout out to um, uh, Jay Manchin Wong, uh, who said, um, ask about the iCloud uh, advanced data protection. So we got that in. And now uh, Richard Porter um, also asks about uh, how Proton and the Swiss authorities interact. And there's this article that he links to uh, where he says that he shows that a court order led to the arrest of a French climate activist uh, when it came to Proton. So what's going on with your relationship with the Swiss government? And do they have undue power over your company? I think uh, unless your company is based in a boat uh, 15 miles <laughs> offshore, uh, yeah. you are under the jurisdiction of, you know, uh, some country, right? Uh, so, you know, given that you accept you'll be in a jurisdiction of some country, it's a question of, you know, picking the jurisdiction. 
Uh, and in Proton's case, you know, uh, we chose Switzerland because uh, it is quite privacy protective. It has a long tradition of privacy, uh, and the laws generally are quite good. Um, but that doesn't mean you know Switzerland is not Somalia, right? It's not a lawless you know country where anything goes. Uh, and I think you know Proton as a service, if you use Proton, it's also not let's say immunity from criminal prosecution. Uh, so in situations where someone is breaking Swiss law, uh, you know we do have to comply. And actually, this case in, in you know, this particular yeah, what case, happened with the climate activist? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not even sure the climate activist, to, to, be, to be honest, right? Uh, you okay. know, um, what happened in this case was, uh, you know, there were some folks uh, who had been uh, illegally, uh, you know, squatting a building. Uh, and they had done, you know, extensive property damage and had been, you know, had been stealing, you know, theft, right? Uh, so the issue here is, you know, your pub- destruction of, of, you know, pr- private property, uh, theft, uh, these are things that, you know, um, actually are illegal in Switzerland. Um, and, you know, you can't do that thing, do things like that, right? You know, when you do something like that, you you will get in trouble. Now, what I find interesting about this case is, you know, people were so focused on, oh, you know, Proton cooperates with Swiss governments, which, you know, to me was pretty obvious. Um, but what was interesting is this was actually probably one of the first times that Proton's encryption was tested in court. Uh, mm-hmm. If you think about this case, uh, you know, people have been destroying a building, they're squatting a building. Um, the police knew who they were, right? They weren't trying to find them. Uh, they simply had to go to the address and they were there. Uh, the folks actually had already been previously been arrested. Uh, so in that case, you know, why did um, police come to Proton in this case? Well, they were trying to get incriminating information uh, from the emails in order to build a case. And what this case demonstrated, you know, clearly, you know, through the legal system was even under legal pressure, even under legal coercion, even with the Swiss, you know, um, government coming down and ordering us, uh, there is no way uh, to, you know, um, break Proton's encryption. There is no backdoor. Um, otherwise, we would have we would have been, have been legally compelled to use it. Uh, and I think it's, uh, in, in many ways, um, I think it's good to have that reassurance, right, to know that our assurances of encryption have been legally tested. And if these folks have been using, you know, Gmail or something else, the outcome will be very different, right? All the evidence would have been there. Uh, but in, in our case, you know, nothing could be decrypted. Uh, and I think, you know, it's, it, it, it proves that, you know, uh, this works. Uh, and Proton does fight in court. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, um, about a month uh, after uh, this case, uh, we won actually a major legal victory. Uh, so, you know, um, what this means is, Unless you're based, you know, uh, 15 miles offshore, you're in a country, right? But what you can do is change the laws of a country through the way that they're interpreted by fighting court cases. And, you know, we actually won a court victory about a month after this case uh, that, you know, dramatically limits the amount of information that email providers are required to retain and hand over. Uh, and, you know, in a democracy, you can do that. So, you know, it's not like you just have to give in to whatever the government asks. Um, you can sue the government. You can fight them in court. And in many cases, you actually can win uh, like we did, you know, that in, in that particular case. Andy, last question for you. Um, you mentioned you have 70 million users and, you know, compared to Gmail, which has a billion plus sort of feels like a hobby site. And I'm not saying that it's a hobby site, but like the benefits are obvious. The sale is not going very well. If you look at the sheer numbers, why is that? And and can that ever change? Well, um, you know, if I look at privacy, it's really a bit like electric cars, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Um, the environmental, you know, benefits were obvious, 
the fact that it's the future, um, well, it wasn't obvious back then to anybody other than Elon Musk. This is why he's the richest man in the world, right? Um, but uh, at some point, uh, going electric on automobiles becomes inevitable. Uh, and I think it's the same for privacy, right? You know, at some point, um, when the private services is just as good as a non-private service, uh, why would anybody not pick the private service? Um, and and just like today, why would you not pick electric car when everything is basically equivalent, or if not better than you know uh, the you know um, non-electric version? Uh, and I think you look at a service like Proton, where we don't have advertisers, and we can really do everything at service of the users. In the long run, being privacy first actually will lead to a better user experience because we don't have to make the compromises that Google and other companies are making you know, to satisfy advertisers. Uh, so you know, if you take the longer view of this thing, uh, I do believe in you know, 5, 10, maybe even 20 years, uh, we will get to a place where people look at this and say, wow, this is obvious. Why didn't we go privacy first? Uh, now, it'll take a while to get there. There's a lot of work to do. You know, um, Tesla didn't take off the automobile industry overnight. It took 20 years. Uh, but if the core you know, philosophy is correct, uh, and if the alignment is there for the customers, uh, I think, you know, this is going to be inevitable, uh, but it will take some time to get there. And Dian, thanks so much for joining. Yes. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be on. Great chatting. And that'll do it for us here on Big Technology Podcast. Thank you, Andy, so much for joining. Really great conversation. Uh, we have to do it again for sure. Uh, thanks to all of you, the listeners. This is going to do it for us for 2022. We have some big news coming up in 2023. This podcast is going to Uh, get even better. And I'm very excited to make an announcement uh, in the first week of January. So stay tuned for that. Um, It's going to be super fun. I I really, I feel like even telling you now, but I'll keep you in suspense. Anyway, thank you so much for for listening. Really, it's it's amazing that people come back week after week. And I'm going to do my part to make sure that your dedication to this show is, is rewarded with some great interviews coming up next year. Okay. Thank you, Nate Gwatney, for the amazing job that you've done this year. We've uh, really, you know, done some last minute shows and I think it's really paid off. We've been able to be timely uh, and and tight in, in the work that we do here and couldn't happen without you. So thank you, Nate. Thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. Here is uh, to the next year. We're going to keep doing this next year. So that's awesome. And, um, and once again, thanks to all of you. Wow. 2022 is over. Next show is in 2023. We will see you then and there on Big Technology Podcast. Music